you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter number 15. Mark chapter number 15. We're almost done. We're closing again. It's been a long time that we've been in the book of Mark, but what a blessing it's been in my own life. Um, it's been good for me. It's been a blessing to just trek through the book of Mark verse by verse. Um, I think that as a pastor or teacher or preacher, and maybe as a, an individual Christian, it is... Um, you have a tendency to gravitate towards one book or another, or one type of literature or another, and the epistles were it for me. I'm black and white. I love commands. Tell me what to do, and um, and I'll go. And Lord willing, I'll try to exceed the expectations. Um, so a narrative was somewhat out of my comfort zone. But I love the Gospels. It's a different way to preach. It's a different emphasis. Um, but what a blessing it's been just to spend almost two years looking at Christ. It's been so good for my soul. And I pray that it has been for yours as well. Just to see Him there ever before us. Just to be in His presence. That the Word might just be engrafted in our souls and make us more like His, his Son. Um, and now we come to Mark chapter number 15 and verses 39 through 41. We're going to take our reading up in verse number 33, just for context's sake. So if you can and are able, um, would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's Word? As I said, we'll pick up our reading in verse number 33, and we'll end it in verse 41. But the primary emphasis of the, of the sermon, the message, will be verse 39 through 41. We read these words in verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, Laba, Lama Sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled the sponge of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil on the temple was torn in top, in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and less and of Joseph and of Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray once more. Uh, Father, again, we come to you just to pray that you would work. Uh, Father, that you would take the living word of God and make it alive in our souls. Um, Lord, that it would take root, and that it would be like uh, honey to the, to, the, to the tongue. Father, that it would be like a hammer to um, rock hard hearts, Father, that it would be like a medicine to the soul, that it would be the very voice of God um, to sinners and saints. And Father, we ask you to do this because we can. So we come to you, Father, looking to hear from you this morning, even myself, Father, as I, as I pray, as I preach, as I teach, Father, and I pray that you would make yourself known to me. Father, in a mighty way, and that you would make me other than, Father, like you, like your son, as we um, just look into the living and breathing word of God. Father, may it be powerful like a two-edged sword and divide asunder even the very thoughts and intents of my heart. And Father, may it push me on to Christ. May it push all of these people on to Christ, Father, no matter where they're at. Help us to be faithful, Father, in the in the proclamation of the word. Um, and Father, help us to be faithful in the application of it. Um, apply it to our hearts, Lord. Help me to do that. But even where I fall short, Father, pray that the Spirit of God would take it to places, God, that we can't go, to the very depths of hearts, Father. And um, make your children more like yourself this morning. And if there's someone here that doesn't know Christ, Father, may today be the day of their salvation. 
as you apply the gospel, Father, in a way that you never have. May they see Christ and see him crucified and see him as Savior and Redeemer of their life, Father. And may they call upon him this day, um, the, the Savior of all the earth. Father, we put these things in your hands. So go with us now with your, in your word, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. you ever woke up early one morning just wondered why and I know that the answer to that is yes um, with the state of our world and the way that it's going uh, we've wondered why are we here why are we going through the things that we're going through why is our nation in a downward spiral why is the economy in the condition that it's in you know, why is it that we have the leaders that we do? Why is it that I work at the job that I do? Why am I going through all the things that I do? Um, yeah, yeah, that's not the why. Have you ever just woke up one morning and asked and wondered why? Um, why God saved me? Just overwhelmed with the grace of God and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, that he'd reach down. He had sent his only son into the world to save sinners like us. I mean, it would be somewhat akin this morning if you woke up and the leader of a nation that you were very familiar with, maybe not even this nation, um, just out of nowhere, you, you, you wake up and you hear across the news that he appointed a man whom nobody knows. He has no experience. <laughs> He has nothing to do in politics or in strategy of war or in the leading of a nation. And it's as if he just pulls him out of nowhere and appoints him to a place of status. Puts upon him his royal regalia, puts him in a place and a position of just blessing that, that no other man, um, whether it's in second command or it's in leading um, in this capacity or another. Um, and you wake up and you think, what in the world is this guy doing? You know, maybe he doesn't know what he's doing. Um, and why have we elected him at all? Or maybe it could be even more emphatic. What if you were to wake up one day and the leader of a nation actually brought someone in and made them of such a status? Um, but it wasn't just a nobody, it was an enemy. Can you imagine today if if the leaders of our nation, and it may be plausible, you know, pulled someone from Russia, um, of whom we know were the worst of the worst, and led them um, and put them in a position of status within our nation to lead in areas of strategy and, 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 nation, and the nation's protection and a whole host of other things. We would think, not only does this guy know what he's doing, but clearly this guy doesn't. And the reality is, is that that's probably true. But doesn't it just blow your mind that every single day that's what God does? You know? Like the king of heaven and glory, is, his, his status as the creator of heaven and earth, the king and the savior of all the world, his, his status is far beyond any king or any nation any leader in this world, any great men that you've ever looked up to or followed in his example or thought, I want to be more like that man, this is different. And not only is he the ruler of nation, but he is the ruler of all the nations. Not only is he king, but he's the king of all kings. And this king is determined in his own wisdom and decree and in his utter graciousness that throughout the ages he would pick out from the world sinners, nobodies, people of whom have no repute, but also enemies of, of God. And I look at the Apostle Paul. He's saved. He's, he's, he's one of the ultimate enemies of Christianity, such that he's a murderer of men, and particularly of Christians. He goes and seeks to bind them, and God saves them. And what does the, what does the church do? They question it immediately, and rightfully so. I mean, the, the church is wondering, is this guy a snake? Is he a wolf in sheep's clothing? You know, Barnabas... Um, gives him the benefit of the doubt and seeks to offer him graciousness, which the rest of the church won't. Why? Because God has saw fit to save this man. You know? Like God is pulling men and women and children out of this world um, every day. But that's how, that's how he operates every day. You know? Like it's not just Paul. 
We look at Paul or we look at, you know, uh, Islam or we look at all of these other religions in which God just emphatically and just unrealistically and just gratuitously saves. You know, and it causes us to question even um, certain things um, in the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we look in our worldview, you know, and, and even question the wisdom sometimes. But the reality is, is that that's all God saves. He doesn't save good men. He doesn't save sound men. He doesn't save skillful men. He doesn't save intellectual men. He doesn't save capable men. He doesn't save able men. He doesn't save smart men. He just saves sinful men, of which we're all enemies of God. He takes the, the unlikely, you know, and he saves them. Again, that's the passage of Scripture that we come to even this morning. You know, we, 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 have, we have abounded in the grace of God that he would allow us to glean into the cross of Christ over the last several months. And we've seen that now we're at the point in Mark chapter 15 and throughout the Gospels in which our Lord has walked up Golgotha. He has endured the trials. He has been flogged beyond measure. This man should not be walking. He shouldn't even be alive. There's no um, way to measure the amount of blood loss that he's lost through injury and even through uh, sweating drops of, of blood. He's been ridiculed. He's been mocked. He's been left for dead. He's got nails in his feet and within his hands at this moment. He's been raised upon this cross to hang there for hours with even more ridicule. He's been abandoned by most of his own. So not only ridiculed by um, the Jewish elite, murdered by Rome, but also abandoned by most of his friends. And we read that, that great text of which he cries out to God. He's been abandoned by the Father as well. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see the orphaned cry of the King of kings and Lord of lords as if in some way, in a way that we can't reconcile in our own mind, he's been even now abandoned by the Father. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by men, but now even the Father. The, what happens, the ridicule continues. Um, he's given some sour wine and in that, that he, he, he musters up enough strength um, to, to speak his last words, he breathes his last with a loud voice. Verse 37 says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We see in that phrase, um, not only here, but, but throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews, we see Jesus Christ accomplish the salvation of all who would believe. Um, he reaches the nations in that last cry. Um, he would transform the world from this moment on. And the veil would be rent, and the writer of Hebrews would tell us that that veil would be an emblem, a symbol, a picture, an illustration, a shadow of what happened to Christ. That he is the veil. And the ripping of that veil and the, the, the tearing of the flesh, the, 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 the broken body and the, the, the shedding of the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would give entrance into the body of Christ. It would now open the way, that way which was shut to common man in which a high priest would have to go into once a year behind the veil and enter into the very presence of God. Um, a fearful thing, a joyful thing, yes, but a fearful thing. Uh, that, that, so fearful that at some point someone got the idea that um, they would tie a rope around the high priest and put bells upon the hem of his garment so that if he went in and died in the presence of God, they heard the, the bells cease to, to ring, they would at least pull him out and could get him outside the veil. Um, that, that, that this was a fearful thing to be in the very presence of God. Um, yet it was a joyful thing because it was a way in which God would mediate His presence to a people who were an undeserving people. So in some sense, he would, they would fear, but at the same time, they would rejoice. And this would be an emblem, a picture, a shadow um, of that one which was to come in which the veil um, that, that, that separated the, 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 the presence of the Father with, a, uh, with the presence of man would be rent and torn down and there would be just uh, unmediated um, entrance into the very presence of God through Christ. Just what a blessing of a text and what a blessing of a reality that this thing has happened and then verse number 39, we see really the implications of that begin to play out in time and reality as we now turn to a, a, a man and a group of men and really a group of women who are the unlikely and the most of unlikely converts, the most of unlikely devoted, um, that, that 
That as I mentioned earlier, that what God does is he takes those that are unlikely according to our wisdom, our knowledge, and our strategy. I mean, he makes men out of them, and he makes godly women out of them, and he makes godly children out of them. And, um, and we see that immediately happen here at the cross. Our Lord breathes his last. And verse number 35 says, So when the centurion, who opposite of him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And we meet this man. This man who's an enemy of God in some sense. This man who is a nobody, that you don't know his name. He's not been written down in human history. Um, but he's a Roman soldier. He's a man's man. And then we meet some women. And all of these people become the focus of not only Mark, but Matthew and Luke as well. And it's interesting because according to Jewish standard of time, uh, neither a Roman soldier nor a group of women amounted to much of anything. That if, that if this was a Jewish document in its perfect form, you wouldn't be reading about of Mary Magdalene. You wouldn't be reading of a Roman soldier. Um, you would be reading of famous Jewish men, rabbis. It was the famous rabbinic prayer every morning during this time. Where they would say, I thank thee, O God, thou hast not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. So if a group of Jewish zealots were writing this book, chances are that they would not even take the time to include these parties because it would have been incidental and, or at least insignificant information. Just their presence in the text informs us at least something of the author's views of these parties as well as the way that God viewed them. And this God holds them in a high status because in some sense this is what he came to accomplish. And thus we meet the centurion, thus we meet these precious ladies. First we meet the centurion, verse number 9. So when the centurion who stood opposite of him. The Greek is emphatic that the original is emphatic that he's standing over against him. He's there with Christ. He's not just with Christ, but he's, but he's there at Christ. He's, he's looking over him. He's standing opposite of him such that he hears the cry emphatically. He sees him. Um, chances are the narrative is painting that picture that he breathed his last. It was something that he was a personal witness of. It's not something that the soldiers came and told him, we're done for the day. Let's clock out while he's over there um, watching something on the tube or or, or engaged in some other practice. He's, he's, he's at this point, he's engaged, this Roman centurion, he's engaged in the events that are at hand um, such that he is over and he is against him, almost upon him. It's very emphatic, this Roman centurion. A Roman centurion was a leader of soldiers, a hundred soldiers to be exact. It could be seen as a rather prestigious position within certain authority and power among among some, some up in Roman leadership, not so much. It was a non-commissioned um, position. But nevertheless, we have before us a man who is in the authority over a hundred soldiers. It's highly probable that this man um, was not present at the crucifixion just by happenstance or by chance. It's very likely, um, given the environment that he uh, there, that um, he was there because things were going south. Um, or at least there was a chance that they would go south. It doesn't necessitate that there was a Roman centurion um, overseeing every single crucifixion, but chances are this crucifixion was of such a high status because it was Passover week, somewhere projected 2.5 million Jews, and they're putting insurrectionists to death. We've already seen two of those, um, one of whom was released, or two of those plus one whom was released, um, Barabbas. And by this point, you can tell that maybe there's a fuse that's about to blow. Um, it was common during these times for riots to break out if it wasn't for Rome being there. Um, so the chances are that there was a perfect storm that was being laid. So there's a Roman centurion um, that is called by providence um, to come and oversee um, the crucifixion of this man. And this man who was charged with blasphemy, this man who's charged with insurrection, this man who's charged with um, the, the, the possibility of, 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 of forming a coup um, to rise against Rome. We've even seen that. We've seen that in John chapter number 11, um, in which Caiaphas and the high, priest, or the high priest come together with the Pharisees. They say, we've got to kill this man. 
You know, why? Because if not, um, he'll lead an insurrection even against us, us <clears throat> and uh, Rome will, will kill us. Um, so we, we, we enter into the cross and we see and meet this man who really is not a new man. Um, he's a man that's been there the entirety of the time. Um, he's a man that has been there overseeing, chances are for hours, um, the, the death of, of this man, Jesus. Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 54. Um, we read just a few more um, verses on this from Matthew's account. He says, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking from, on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So when we come to Matthew, we get a little more information. We see that Matthew includes not only the centurion, but the soldiers there with him. We read from literature that it was common for soldiers to be there for every criminal, particularly four. So chances are the centurion was there. If three men were being brutally crucified, there would have been 12 soldiers along with them, possibly more, um, given the reality that um, this is such a high-status crucifixion, possibly. Matthew also goes on to say that at this time, not only did the centurion see um, the, the death of our Lord, hear his cry, but also heard or witnessed an earthquake. And because of the surrounding of the soldiers, they, they all became frightened. Matthew states that not only was this confession the confession of the centurion, but the soldiers as well. If you were to go to Luke's account, you would also read Luke, give a little bit more information on the account. Luke chapter 23 and verse number 47. You read these words. So when the centurion saw, and again the focus is back upon this single man, not the entirety of the crowd nor the other soldiers, saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing that he had been done, beat their breast in return. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching all of these things. Again, we see here that particularly the, the Roman centurion that as the earthquake breaks as Christ gives up his last, the veil is torn, he hears the cries, he's heard the word, and we see this man respond in praising God, it says, or glorifying God. It's the word doxa. It's where we get our word doxology from, where we sing often uh, at the end of services or in, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's this, this utter, um, just, just this culmination of the reality of truth in a person's heart, which explodes itself in utter adoration. It's this type of word that is used here of the centurion, of, of what he's seen. He responds with glorifying God, but also with fear, the text says, that there is a, a praising, yet at the same time a reverence, which seems kind of strange to us, to be afraid yet rejoice, but it's not to God. Um, you see it all throughout the scriptures. We hear of that in Revelation 14, 7. The angels who preached and the everlasting gospel says, Fear God and give Him glory. For the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Later in Revelation you read these words, Who shall not fear you and glorify your name? Psalm chapter 2 and verse number 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. What you see is you see this idea within Scripture of coming into the presence of God, whether it's in His judgment or His, His presence of, of any sort, that we see this reality of a reverent fear that falls upon a man, such that it would cause him to fall upon his face, yet at the same time a glorifying, a praising, a rejoicing. And that's what we find here in this Roman Centurion. That's what we find here in the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers, I think it's important to say that these men were bred and built for the job. This was their job, many of them. And this may not seem like a huge deal to us, but it really, in the, in the context of what happens here, maybe it is. Um, because chances are, we, we look at the religious elite and we look at the Judaizers and we look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We know what the Sanhedrin's concept or, or, or their ideals are here. 
They hate our Lord. They want to crucify and murder him. But if you'll remember going back to Pilate, he tried to avoid it and everything that he was. And what we have here in the Roman soldiers are murderers, yes, but they're almost murderers by hire. Um, they're not murderers by passion. What you have here in Roman soldiers in a Roman centurion, as, 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 even, um, as even tragic as it is, thinking about it from this perspective, it's just another day's job. They'd probably crucified men up to this point to the hundreds, and, um, if not more. That this was a common occurrence that happened within Rome. Why? Because they wanted to set an example for the men that had followed. Um, they, wanted, they wanted Judea, they wanted Israel, they wanted the nation to know that if anyone stood against them, thus they placed Golgotha and the three crosses, not only on this day, but many other days in some fashion, um, to, to where every man could see. Why? So they wouldn't overstep or step over the boundaries and authority of Rome. So there wouldn't be any outbursts, so there wouldn't be any insurrections. So these men were men who had... Um, perfected the task of crucifixion, and they had perfected it through through um, constant practice. You know, practice makes perfect in some sense, and it did here. So what we see in this Roman soldier, this Roman centurion particularly, is a man who may have led at least the soldiers, that, that, that these men who had seen, if not handled, multiple, if not hundreds of crucifixions up to that time. And that may be even more horrifying, to be honest with you, than than from the perspective of, of Israel, you know? Um, it'd be like going to the abortion clinic and a doctor there and a nurse just treating it like it's nothing, you know? It's just tissue. It's just an aborted pregnancy, you know? It's not life. It's not this or that. Those people scare me oftentimes more at their apathy and their indifference. But this is a life. And just utterly reject that. That's what you see in this text, possibly. What you see is a group of men who come to work, they clock in at 8 a.m., and they leave at 4 p.m., and they just clock out. They've just murdered men, and it means nothing to them. That this is, seems to be, or it could be very much the idea here, that you have a lukewarm, apathetic, and indifferent people who are simply um, carrying out their job. And I can tell you that on many days going out to an abortion clinic and trying to reach people like that, you become very embittered and you become very sometimes indifferent as well. And you wonder if God could save a man like that, right? Like, you talk to people like that, you talk to people who are just totally hardened in their heart and they carry on and not only are they willing to carry on and, and usher people in to commit what is I think one of the greatest atrocities and tragedies um, of our time um, but if we're not careful what, what will also happen is is that over a period of time um, as a Christian you can become very hardened towards them um, you can stop praying for them. You can stop reaching out to them. You can stop preaching the gospel to them. You can wonder um, how in the world, God, you, you can almost label them as reprobates and wonder if you're casting pearls before swine. Maybe you are. I don't know. You know, But that's something particularly that I've struggled with, engaging a lost culture that seems to be gone to such an extent in which they're unaffected by even the greatest of atrocities in our life. You wonder, how could God save a man? May I encourage you this morning with this text? Because in this text, God takes a man who has probably seen and, and carried out charges and, and, and sentences um, to, to, to the multitudes. By this time, he has worked his way up through being just a, an average soldier to where he's in authority. Um, he's, he, he sits through these possibly on a regular basis. Um, to such an extent that at the end of it, you would think that he's just going to check out. He's going to punch his clock and he's going to go home and he's going to come back to Rome the next day and carry out whatever order um, Nero has to say or whoever's in charge, Caesar, during that time um, has to say. Yet something in this man changes. Something is redirected. Something happens to this man. Something at the end of this, as he's carried it out, has not stopped him up to this point. But, but in the midst of it, after he hears the cry, after he sees the earthquake, after, after he hears the words of our Lord, after he um, gives the orders and carries it all out, what we see in this man is that something seems to change. And there's a redirection of his heart. 
Something happens in him to astonish him that would, that, would, that would bring him to say such a statement that carries with it gravity, such as the gravity that the, truly this is the Son of God. And I'm going to make the argument that this morning that this man, I believe, was converted. And that as, what, as a result of what he had seen in Christ there, the words of Christ, something before him, um, affected a change in his heart and his life that would pr provoke him um, to, to, to give his life to Christ. And it's manifested in this statement uh, among all men, among the soldiers that are there, among the women that are far off, among the Judaizers that are here. He makes a public proclamation that this man truly is the Son of God. And it's more than just an indifferent statement. It's more than just a, 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 a statement of, of not knowing what he's saying. And because you read commentators... And they have different positions on this. You, know, you read different men or you listen to different men. And some men say that this is nothing more than just a, a, a pagan man who's impressed by Christ. That what he sees in this is much like a soldier or a martyr who goes to death. And they see the manly behavior of our Lord. And they see uh, you know, the, the courage that he has. And he's uh, you know, nothing more than a, than a, a William Wallace in Braveheart. You know, who's a man to be commended for his efforts. And martyrs should be upheld in some sense. Um, but, you know, for example, one commentator says, By the Son of God, the centurion presumably meant that Jesus was a divine man or a deified hero who accepted humiliation and death as active obedience to a higher mandate. That he either thought that he was a devout pagan man or something of a pagan demigod, which would have been very common in those days. And one one person, one commentator says, sons of God were prominent in the Greco-Roman world, primarily as rulers, philosophers, poets, heroes, or miracle workers. That, that, that there would have been within the earthly realm, the Hellenistic, the Greek realm, there would have been a status of a son of God, which along with other numerous titles would have been something of a superhuman distinction. That this was a man above men or this was a man below God in almost an angelic status um, who, would have, who would have ascended beyond men to a status where he would have received honor. Some would say that that's exactly what's happening here. That, the, that this Roman centurion who did not have any kind of sense of a, um, a, a, a Hebrew concept of son of God must have meant that this was not truly the son of God in a saving way. It must have meant in a Greco-Roman way. Others say here that the centurion simply spoke better than he knew. Now, this, is, this is actually possible. This actually happens throughout the Gospels. Pilate, for example, says... Behold, the king of the Jews, as he speaks of Christ. And obviously, he was speaking much better than he knew. It was sarcasm. It was, um, we don't doubt that. Um, a better one may be, again, a reference to John chapter 11, when Caiaphas, the high priest, was having a conversation with his religious um, cohorts. And in warning, he says to them in verse 49, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for that nation, but also that he would gather together and one children of God who were scattered abroad. That, that Caiaphas there, he, he gave a prophecy, but he didn't, believe, he didn't know what he was saying. Um, he didn't know that Jesus Christ would truly die for the nations, that he spoke better than what he knew. Um, I'm of the opinion, though, I think biblically undergirded that this man, when he states truly this is the Son of God, that it is a true confession of Christ's divinity and a proper conversion of this man to Christ. That there's a very early Christian tradition even that states the centurion's name is uh, Longinus and that this centurion was converted and became an outstanding leader in the Christian church. And that's tradition, so we don't know if it's 100% accurate. Um, so let us argue from the Scriptures. That the centurion would have known what it meant to be the son of God in some sense. He would have understood that, that, that he would have heard the mockeries that came down in previously in the gospels. Um, he would have understood as he stood for trial what he was being charged for. The fact that he was actually claiming to be the son of God. That this was the charge in which he was being put to death. This is what, this is what grounded him, their, their argument for blasphemy. 
that it was because he argued at John chapter 5 to be equal with God. You know, uh, many people will come and they'll argue, whether it's a Jehovah Witness or other people, they'll argue that when Jesus was arguing that he was the Son of God, that all that he meant was that he was born out of God, that he was of God in the same way that a son was, is a, a son of a father, that he images the father in that way. But he's of a different nature, or in some sense, he's of a different person. He just reflects God. But that's hard to believe considering John chapter number 5. That they plot to kill our Lord because he says that he is the son of God. making The text says making himself equal with God. That the idea would be that he's of the same substance as God. That he's of the inherent nature of God. That he's more than just human. Just like my son would be of the same nature. We are both human. Um, in that sense to say that he was the son of God to, to the Hebrew ears would have been to say that he was of the same substance as God. That he carried the same nature of God. That he made himself equal with God. Thus, um, he, thus they sought to kill him and eventually would and get pinned upon him that charge of blasphemy. Why? Because he claimed to be the son of God. That the centurion would have known the charges. They would have heard the mockeries. They would have known that he was being put to death um, for being and claiming to be the son of God. He would have heard it whenever they said, truly, if you are the son of God, then bring yourself down from the cross. That his confession comes in the context of what he had seen and what he had heard. And certainly he was affirming something more than mere pagan notions. And what we know is that Mark records this confession in a way to impact his readers. We know that, not just, just from a literature perspective, just from the Word of God. We, we should recognize that when Mark writes these words, he records this confession um, in a way to impact you and me. In all reality, what was in the heart of the centurion is between him and God. And we won't know, of course, that until we get to heaven. But what we do know for certain is that Mark uses this man's confession to grip us. To write to us. Doesn't it impact us to read a Gentile saying convincingly after he experiences the totality of the crucifixion of Christ. The text says that each of the synoptic gospels in some fashion that Jesus breathes his last. He's dead. It's finished. The veil's rent. And the first thing that's recorded in all of these synoptic gospels is truly this is the son of God. And it's more than incidental. It's more than insignificant. It's more than just raw facts. We must remember why the Gospels are written anyway. Now, John tells us why the Gospels are written. That they're more than just historical narratives. They're more than just exhaustive history books. They're more than just chronological references to this fact, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and then this happened. They were written so that you and I may believe. Like when I preach this morning, it's not so that you can go away and know that, that a Roman centurion had authority over a hundred cohorts, that it was his regular job, that these women were despised by um, Judaizers and would have been insignificant. The point is, is that when you read this text, you may true believe that he truly is the Son of God. That there's a building of, the, of, of Mark particularly who begins his gospel with those very words. Mark chapter 1 and verse number 1, you read this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What you find is that throughout the Son of God is utilized by Peter. It's utilized by the demons. It's utilized by the Father as he delights in the Son. And it culminates here um, following the crucifixion. The first thing that is, that is related to us is that truly this is the Son of God. Mark, what have you been trying to convince us of the whole time? That, 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 from, that, that, that from the very origin of this book, the first thing that I'm going to write, this is to convince you that this is the Son of God. That he is God of very God. That he is of the same substance and nature. That he is the Messiah of old. That when Isaiah writes in 53, he writes about this man. When, 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 Psalm, when, when the psalmist writes, David writes in Psalm 22, he writes about this man. Uh, when, 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 when the Old Testament pictures are written, when the shadows go forth, when the illustrations are there, when Abraham takes his son up to Mount Moriah, when, when, when the promise is given in Genesis, when, when all of these things are, 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 are given to us in the Scriptures, it's to convince you. It is that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
And that Mark particularly has begun with that notion. That when you pick up the book of Mark, by the end of it, he desires to convince you by the power of the Spirit that this truly is the Son of God. Thus, whenever he takes Jesus himself, takes the last breath, the first thing that we see is the completion. It's more than a thesis statement in 1.1. He proves his argument in 15 and 39. He spent the entire book displaying to you the glory of Christ in his humanity as well as in his divinity, his purity, um, and his ultimate godliness. And it takes its primary um, culmination. It culminates in the crucifixion and in the cross. And thus we hear, truly, this is the Son of God. Mark, what are you trying to tell me? This is the Son of God. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is, is that this is the Son of God. And then Mark 15, 39, truly this is. After you've seen all this, after you've heard all this, after we've made it all the way for two years throughout the book of Mark, what, Pastor, what do you hope to accomplish? That you truly believe that this is the Son of God. This is Him. And all of his power and all of his glory and all of his majesty. And that you with fear and reverence, yet at the same time with joy and rejoicing, may fall on our we all may fall on our faces and recognize with the centurion that this truly is the Son of God. And if that wasn't enough on top of this, I think I think there's a theological argument to be made, right? Um, One commentator says, For Mark, it's clearly important that that at this point, whether intentionally or unintentionally, the truth was publicly declared. The theme of the whole gospel here comes to its triumphant conclusion. Do you remember last week as we went to the veil and we looked at that in the book of Hebrews and we could go to the book of Acts and we could go to Ephesians and we could go to a number of places in the New Testament that when the veil is rent, it doesn't just mean um, to the Jews that, 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 that access is made known and open to you. One of the great theological statements that's going to be made is that when the veil is rent, when Christ is, dies, when Christ dies, the presence of God is mediated through Christ to all men, everywhere, all people, all nations, Old Testament to new. And you see that play out in the book of Acts and through the epistles. That what you see is this opening up of the gospel to the nations that was nowhere else paralleled throughout the Old Testament. That in Christ there would be one new body. Ephesians chapter number 2 and 3. And that great mystery of Christ would be now that the Jew and Gentile have become one flesh. And they've come together one with another. And they create this new man, this new body which was... Uh, which, was, which is manifested particularly in Christ and the new covenant. Why? Because it's his body. He's the head. And he is the head and the authority over not only Jew but Gentile as they become one and are inheritors of the covenant and the promise. So how more appropriately could Mark have said that? Other than the first one in his gospel as well as the other gospels. The first one at the culmination of Christ's death, burial, uh, death and at the, at the culmination of the, of the work that he was given to do. But a centurion comes. A Gentile dog, according to the Judaizers. And then women who are following, are devoted, are de- devoted to him, we'll see in just a moment. But there's no doubt a statement just in the reality that a Roman centurion would come to this man Christ. And confess him as the son of God. Why? Because under the old covenant and under the Judaizers of the day, the legalists, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the, the Sanhedrin, this man was outside the covenant. This would have made them probably mock him even more as they stood there aside and they said, and they saw him, they saw Roman centurion say, truly, this is the son of God. And they looked back and said, this is his crowd. (laughs) You know, you can imagine as you, as you just With a sanctified imagination, try to put yourself there at the cross and he's crucified. He takes his last breath and we see just an explosion of celebration coming from the Judaizers who wanted him dead. And you can see this Roman centurion say, truly, this is the son of God. And just reverence and fear and back behind a a group of women um, who are devoted to him and who will not leave his side even at his death. When all other men will, will, will leave him, they won't. And you can just imagine what's going through the Judaizers minds this is what he's got 
You know? I'm glad we killed him. His murder was justified. Surely this will end now. What does he have left? A Roman centurion and a band of women. You know? Ragtag. Nothing according to them. Nothing according to the world. Nothing. And what does God do? God uses those things uh, to carry on human history in which the gates of hell will never prevail against the church with just a bunch of seemingly ragtag people who are unusable according to the world's standards. What does God do? He makes a public proclamation um, in this moment that the veil is rent, uh, that the, the presence of God is open to all who will believe, and not just to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. And the first one that he says, come on into, um, is, is a Roman centurion. Changes his life. Changes his life. And behind him are a group of women. I'm not going to give a lot of time to the group of women today because in the coming week or two weeks, we're going to see them even more at the cross. But this was a group of women um, who were solely devoted to Christ. They were gathered at the crucifixion, but from afar. Mary Magdalene, um, in whom Christ converts earlier in, um, earlier in the story, pulling demons out of her. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph which is possibly, very possibly, um, the mother of Christ. And then Salome, who had two sons, the sons of thunder. You may remember them as James and John. These are women who are just, just loyal, they're zealous, they're voracious in their own sense. They're gutsy, they're, and they're following Christ. And... For Mark to even include them as just some herald at the, the dignity and the value of women in the serving of Christ. It's, it's no doubt in my mind that as Mark writes this, and Peter could very well may be the source, um, that, that as he's abandoned and denied the Lord three times, that he upholds these women um, in some sense for their, for their fidelity, for their faithfulness, for their courage, um, as they put themselves out there for the cause of Christ, never willing to leave him um, even in his death. But these will be the women, these will be the faithful followers um, who, who serve Christ even um, whenever he's, he, he's gone. They'll take his body, um, they'll prepare him for his burial, they'll be there at the um, empty tomb, they'll be the first ones to receive the word from the angels, and they'll be the ones who proclaim the gospel message and the good news of the resurrection um, to even Peter as he comes in unbelief. That these women are devoted women, that these women are faithful women. And this is no doubt in my mind just a, a stark um, rebuke to the men who had unfaithfully, um, there's no mention of them, who had unfaithfully abandoned our Lord during this, this time. And Jesus revolutionizes the world in just so many ways, even during this time, but even now. And he overthrows the common mindset and reestablishes God's standard concerning the Gentiles as well as women. He doesn't overthrow gender distinction and he doesn't uh, disqualify ethnicity or the boundaries of it. He's, but he's, he's not a feminist nor a liberal. And he's not abolishing, again, uh, you know, gender distinction or, or these other things. But he is reestablishing the value that God has placed upon Gentile as well as woman. And giving them their, their, their biblical dignity that apostate Judaism in its rabbinic tradition during New Testament times had robbed them of. And thus what we see gathering around the cross, those that are faithful and those that are converted are the most of unlikely sorts. Of which, the, again, the rabbis would have rose probably possibly early that day and said, thank God that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a woman. And I'm not a slave. Do you ever wonder why it is that the Apostle Paul himself says over and over again throughout his epistles that there is neither bond nor free? There's no slave or unslave. There's neither male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Greek. You know, that, that, that there's no separation between the two now. That, that, that their values are equal in some sense. That, that when Christ died, he died for all men. He died for the nations. He died for every nation, tribe, and tongue. He died for male and female. He died and, and, he, and, he, and he gives that life to all. Um, and he gives that life to all. And that's what we see here in this glorious text. We see first of all, this text demonstrates the importance of confessing Christ as God's Son. 
And that's to go to all men. That again, the gospel is the gospel of God's Son. It's the good news of Jesus Christ who entered into the world to save sinners like us. And Mark, as you read the book, as you go through the book of Mark, Mark writes for a purpose, and that purpose is to press the question home to you and to me 2,000 years later. He writes so that you will ask the question, who is this man? Who is this man that is ever before us? Either he's Christ or he's not. Either he's the Son or he's not. Either he's God or he's not. Either he's a king or he's not. Either he's a savior or he's not. He's more than a good man. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a phenomenal teacher. He just doesn't know. He's not, he's not a guy who just only knows how to, to bring home a text, you know, in a way that's relevant. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the one who, who, who created things invisible as well as visible. He's the one in whom now all things consist. And he's the one whom ages ago, generations before us, yet prophesied of old, um, entered into the world just like us and died and lived and died the, the life and death that we ought to live and die. Why? So that we could be what God desires for us to be. That after we get through this text today, after you read through the book of Mark after two years, what do you want, Pastor? I want you to recognize that truly this is the Son of God. You know? He is God of very God. You say, well, if I was there, you know, like I would probably believe. I'm just not quite there. Listen, you have experienced everything this morning that the Roman soldier has experienced. You have seen Christ. If you have been with us, you have seen him high, holy, and lifted up. You have seen him go before the Sanhedrin. You have seen him tried. You have seen the false charges that they brought against him. You've seen the miraculous works that he's done, and you've seen him go like a lamb to the slaughter. You know? You've seen him die. Galatians chapter number 2 says that before you, Christ was publicly, the crucifixion was publicly displayed and portrayed. You know, everybody's waiting for a miracle. Everybody's waiting for this or for that. And, 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 and Luke tells us without a doubt in that great um, illustration of Abraham, the rich man, and Lazarus, that, that they have Moses and the prophets, and if they will not believe them, they will not believe one that's come back from the dead. You know, we can't wait on a miracle, and we can't wait on a sign when Christ is ever-present before us, and he begs us, now, he implores us, commands us now to bow before him as you, as you read the book of Mark. See Christ, see Him holy, see Him high, see Him lifted up. And confess this morning, if you're outside of Christ, truly this is the Son of God. That you stand this morning, in this text, you stand in the very presence of Christ. And the purpose that it was recorded is so that you may believe. So believe. Truly this is the Son of God. Second, we see the glory and the mystery of Christ shine. I've already touched on this, so I won't spend a lot of time. But we've seen it shine through almost immediately surrounding the cross. We've seen the glory of the mystery of Christ shine through the immediacy of the things surrounding the cross. And what I mean by that is, is that immediately we see the Gentiles come in, in some sense. We see women in the kingdom of God, which would have been uh, unthinkable to the Judaizers of the day. We see the witnesses of his death and primarily the Gentiles and, and the ladies there. That the kingdom would look different, utterly different than what the Jewish establishment thought. The common Israelite of the day would have never included them into the kingdom. But Paul says we are all one in Christ. Neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither bond nor free. We are reminded that, number three, that God's grace is extended to the least of these and saves the unlikely. And that's what we began with. That God chose Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 7, because they were the least. God chooses Abraham out of a pagan society in the Ur of the Chaldees. God chooses Rahab, the harlot. He chooses Ruth, the Moabitess. He chooses men and women throughout the ages for a single purpose. And that purpose is so that he could get the glory. 1 Corinthians 1.26, For you see your calling, brethren, that no many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring nothing to the things that are, that no flesh could glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God, 
or wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. But the reality is, as Old Testament and New. God saves the unlikely. You know, but if you can't wake up in the morning and say, I'm not sure why God saved me, you know. I'm not sure what else to say. I think that's the point of the verse. I think that's the point of the gospel in some sense. I think that's the point of the kingdom of God. And that we would all gather together in just the utter, um, the utter um, astonishment that the, that the king of heaven and glory would enter into this world and save any of us. Not good people, not strong people, not skillful people, not intellectual people, but nobodies and enemies of God. And he'd raise them up and put them in statuses and places in which the world would look and say, is that all you've got? You know, a Roman centurion and a band of women. Is that what you're going to change the world with? Christ, you got 12 disciples and most of them who are proud. And many of them we, we know nothing about. Just a ragtag group of men, group of men. And one of them's going to betray you. He's the, he's the devil from the beginning. He's the wicked most. You, what are you going to do with that? You know? And may the world look around at us, you know, whether they come in here or look at us on Facebook or it's our, 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 our family members looking in and they look in and they, may they say with, with, with utter, um, with, with just, with proof, you know, with, with utter evidence that they look at us and they say, who is this group of people, you know, a bunch of nobodies and men and women who are enemies for God. Now, what are they going to do for Christ? Like, that's who we are. Don't get offended. That's who I am. I'm a nobody. I'm nothing. I have nothing to offer this church. I'm not a great preacher. You know, I'm not, I'm not as faithful as I would like to be. I'm not a wonderful husband. I just have the grace of God. Now, that, is, that, is, that is lively in my heart and in my life on a daily basis. When I would leave him, he never leaves or forsakes me. I persevere because he comes alongside me and he makes me the things that I'm not. You know, and he gives me a desire to preach and he, and he pushes me on to faithfulness in the word. And he gives me people around me whenever I'm beginning to, 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 to walk a, a different line or to, to scurry about off of the road. They, they, they call me back. They rebuke me. They encourage me. They come alongside me and say, be faithful. Look to Christ. You know, like when the world looks at us, it's not looking at a great group of people who can strategically take this world by storm. It's a, it's a bunch of people who were nobodies and enemies of Christ, whom Christ saved. Why? So that when he uses us, he could get the glory. And it'll be made of every nation, tribe, and tongue. It'll be made of every socioeconomic status and of every gender. It, it'll be made of everybody. And God will save whom he desires to save. And God will pull out a Roman centurion, use him for the glory of God. He'll use a band of women. He'll use uh, men who are nobodies. Why? Because at the end of the day, when we are forgotten, they can look and say, Christ really, truly glorified himself in those people. That's what he wants. That's what we want here at the church. You know? Just want people whom Christ has saved. I don't care what they look like. I don't care how old they are. I don't care what gender they are. I don't care what background they have. I don't care, you know, this, this or that, socioeconomic status. You know, we, we don't need more rich people so that we can foot the bill. You know, we don't need these people to be saved because they have a great um, ability to, to, to you know, about them. They have just certain something that just, you know, will just, just help the church, this or that. No, no, we need Jesus Christ to invade us with his presence such that he saves men and women and he makes them what he desires for them to be. And we need men to come to the end of themselves and cast themselves at the feet of Christ out of every nation, tribe, and tongue that he may receive the glory. Those are the men that are faithful. Those are the men that go. Those are the men in which Christ receives ultimate glory. Those are the men that won't steal his crown from him and they'll give him the rightful praise that is due his name. That's what we need. That's what we need here at the church. We need the gospel to go forth. In such a way that it changes men's lives. And we bring them in and disciple them for the glory of Christ. And it's going to look 
strange at times. And why? Because we're strange people, you know? I've had people come along me at different times and say, man, we really need to hone in on this strategy. It seems to be attracting people. You better believe the only strategy that I have is to build upon Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone in him alone. You know what that'll bring? That'll bring different people. You know what that'll bring? That'll bring, yeah, but, but if it brings different people, that's fine as long as it brings saved people. As long as it brings regenerate people. You know, the, the, the thing in which 1 Corinthians 3, the thing in which we're going to build this thing on is going to be the gospel. We're going to not build it at all. Because anything other than that, even good things, um, is to build upon another foundation. And what you begin to build, when you build upon that, is a cult. Around this thing and not the thing in which Jesus Christ desires, that, 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 that gospel upon which to build all things. And what that does is that brings different people. It brings Jew and Gentile. You know, it brings bond and free. It brings rich and poor. It brings all sorts of people in which you look at and you think, how can this thing ever work? You know, but that's what he died for. And it's only in that environment in which really the true Christian ethic and grace is that God extends to his people in Christ can really manifest itself gloriously. Because in our differences, we begin to manifest grace. And in our differences, we begin to manifest forgiveness. And, and in our offenses, we, we, we begin to forgive and extend grace that is immeasurable. You know? Churches that are exactly alike and they have one little niche in which they're, you know, uh, pulling people towards them. You know, it, it's, it's a church built around that thing. You know? Grace is often never needed. Offenses are not often never made. Why? Because we're all like one another. We just encourage each other to be more like us. <laughs> you know? Let's be more faithful in being like us. No, what Jesus Christ came into the world to do was to save people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Nobodies and sinners and even enemies of God that they might come together and be one man and manifest graces in this world in a public nature to a lost and a dying world that they don't have. And that's grace and forgiveness. And that only happens when you bring... Uh, people, uh, sinner, sinners who are saved by the grace of God together. And yes, we're all pushing on towards unity to Christ. We're all being trying to be unified um, in Him. That's our ultimate goal is to be in Him. That's what you see here. How in the world could a Jew, a Roman centurion, and a group of women work together for the cause of Christ? This is the only reason. This is the only way for His glory and His glory alone. That's the only way a Roman centurion could say, you can have that, you know, take it. It's the only way that, 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 that a bunch of self-righteous Jewish people could ever say, I'm going to work together with this Roman soldier, you know, um, who's a Gentile dog. You know, it's the only way. It's not for our glory. It's not for our accolades. It's not so that we can earn rewards. It's not so that we can look better. It's not so that we can build the kingdom of Christ here in the way that we want. It is, it is for His glory and His glory alone. That's what you learn whenever you learn the gospel. That's what you learn when you learn of Christ. We learn that we are to remain devoted to Him and to serve Christ for the sake of the gospel and His glory alone, even in the midst of difficulty. And that's what we see emblemized here in these women. These ladies who would never leave the cross, they would never leave Christ. They had devotion, they had commitment, they had dedication, even in the most difficult of times, yet they stayed. They pushed on, even when other men would not. And that's our call this morning as well. To serve Christ, even when He's not there, whenever you can't feel Him in the difficult of times, you're to persevere, you're to endure, you're to stay faithful for what you know that you ought to do. Church, look, we need to recognize that as well. We need to recognize, first of all, truly this is the Son of God. We need to recognize that Jesus Christ saved sinners and nobodies ultimately so He could get the glory. What that does is that manifests itself in a church that looks different with different people. But it's a place where we can give um, the extra amount of, infinite amount of grace and forgiveness and long-suffering and patience. And you know what? That's hard. And in the difficulty of that, you know what we're supposed to do? Not run. But we're to stay beside Christ and to be devoted, commit ourselves, stay dedicated. Why? Because to do so to His body is to do so to Christ. He's the head. We are the body. 
And the most difficult of times, you're to take his word, you're to read it, you're to live it, and you're to be faithful to it. Trusting Christ, who is our head. Is he the son of God this morning? If you're outside of Christ, I beg and implore you um, to believe on him. And if you are, he is greatly to be praised this morning for the reality that he saves sinners, nobodies, and enemies of God. Why? So that he could get the glory. He puts them in places and status with blessings eternal and beyond measure. You know what? And that should be made known to the rest of the world. So let us make that known this week as we carry out our priestly, kingly service in this life. May all the earth know, as we read in the psalm this morning, Psalm 67, may all the earth know because we lived. He lives. He said, nobody comes. I don't care if they come. Jesus saves. You don't. Um, but what you do, but what you are, should be a public display of the glory of Christ and what he's accomplished in your life. And trust God to save men by use of that if he determines to do so. And glorify him all along the way, whether he does or doesn't. Because the reality is, is you shouldn't know him at all. And that reality alone, that God saved you, um, the world needs to know for their sake. And Christ um, deserves it. Christ deserves every single person in the world to know today um, that he died to save sinners. So let us take it to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you again for the glory that is in Christ, in Christ alone. Father, we have nothing to glory in this morning. We have no great accolades. We have no great rewards, Father. We have no great intellect. We don't have skillful speech, not a great orator, Father, not a loving person, um, Father, not, um, not an inheritance in this world that you didn't give me. Father, I, it, it, it amazes me. It amazes me that I have nothing to the cross I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I, I have nothing, Father, to bring you. And yet, you love us, and you love me. In that we glory, Father. In that I don't seek the answer to even. I just seek to know you more and to glory in that reality. So, Father, as I carry on throughout the week, may that just press upon my soul and press upon the people's souls, Father, and the love wherein you have loved them with, Father. May you just manifest and just pour that overwhelmingly out upon them. May that drive them to Christ. May that make them holier people. May that uh, make them more righteous in nature, Father. May that help them to press on in their depression, Father. Uh, may that ease their anxiety and bring them peace and comfort as they continually preach the gospel to themselves and the reality that Jesus Christ saves sinners of whom I am chief. Father, may that just be the medicine to their souls this week as they carry on and serve you. And may you accomplish great and mighty things through them, Father. And may you bring that to this body, that we may embrace it, Father, and do great things for God. Father, great because you've called us to this work, not great because we've measured it. But great things, Father, are faithful things. So, Lord, help us to be faithful this week as we carry on. For Christ's sake and for Christ's sake alone. May we give him the glory. May we lose ourselves because of that, Father. And may we gain him all the more because of the great Savior in which we serve. So make him known, Father, to the world. But make him known first to us. That truly this is the Son of God. Father, we love and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.